Incoming transmission. The Klingon word of the day is Kog. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. So, this is a huge victory for the good guys. Scotty, beam me up. Resistance is futile. Live long and prosper. Welcome to the Computer Resume Podcast, the show covering the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order for fans new and old. I'm your host, writer-comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis. People called her Smelly Melly in school, so now she's a well-adjusted stand-up comedian. It's Melly Kazel! Yay! Melly! <laughs> Hi! Hello! Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, I'm so excited to get to talk to you. Um, just to kind of pull the curtain back a little bit for folks. This is our third interaction. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we met at a show, uh, a stand-up comedy show here in Greenville back late last year, I think. I think so, yeah. Um, and then you were kind enough to invite me uh, a few months ago to do my first headlining gig at a show you were hosting. And now we're here. But at that first show... We were getting to know, hey, how you doing? You know, this, that, and the other. What's your, what's your thing? What's your deal? All that stuff. And I said, oh, I have a Star Trek podcast. And your eyeballs got real wide. And you're like, I love Star Trek. I was like, <laughs> really? Well, let's let's get together. And I booked you. And and here we are. How are you? I'm doing good. Yeah. <laughs> I was shocked, though, that you'd never headlined. I just have to put that out there. Like, I, I had no idea until you told me that day. <laughs> Oh, that is very kind of you. That's very kind of you. Um, yeah. So, uh, so right off the bat, let's let's, I, you know, when I when I bring somebody in who has a very specific artistic outlet, we'll say I always ask the which came first. So, in terms of Star Trek and stand up comedy, which came for you first, Star Trek or stand up? I mean, I grew up w with both, ah. like in my house. So. Um, my mom kind of was the always showing me comedy stuff constantly. Nice. Um, and then my dad, which I love it now, but when I was really little, he kind of forced me to watch Star Trek and Star Wars and all that stuff. And so I didn't like it for a while because I was like, I can't believe you made me watch this. And then <laughs> I watched it later on and mm -hmm. I was I, I loved it. I thought, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I, I took a break in between and didn't like it. Oh, wow. What was so he introduced you to Star Trek, but it sounds like a couple of other sci fi properties as well. Star Wars, I imagine. Yeah, those two okay. really. <laughs> you, do you remember? Do you remember the first one? Was it Star Trek or Star Wars? It was Star Wars. And I remember the first scene that I remember from when I was a little kid. Mm -hmm. And it's when um, like he it's the prequels because he started with those, which is a mistake. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he, it, dad, it, it's the scene where. Um, like he kind of falls into the lava and then becomes Darth Vader. And that's the first oh. scene I remember. What a traumatizing thing. I hey, watch this guy get burned alive. <laughs> yeah. So that's why I didn't watch any of that stuff for so long. Cause I was like, can't believe I had to watch this, but then he was right. I love it. He was so correct. <laughs> I, you know, to be honest, um, 
years ago, I found what's called the machete order in terms of viewing order for Star Trek, or mm -hmm. excuse me, for Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And you basically start with episode three. And this was before, this was before Rogue One was out. This was before Solo was out. This was before all the TV, before all the TV stuff. This was before the sequel series. So there were just, there were just the six films. Mm -hmm. um, you start with the third one, you go three, four, five, one, two, six. And what that does is it, you end up kind of watching Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones. You end up watching those as like a flashback between, Ooh. yeah, between Empire and Return of the Jedi, which is kind of a cool way to do it. And it put, it gives a little bit of, uh, it gives you a little bit more perspective on it. Um, but of course, now they've added three, four, five more films, six more films, and, um, you know, a whole bunch of, uh, whole bunch of uh digital series how do you like the digital stuff the, or uh, not the digital stuff but the streaming stuff the streaming series do you like any of those i've really just stuck to all the originals i've seen like some of the new but i You're don't know purist. i really for those i like the originals better yeah, yeah yeah the uh i was lucky i found when i was uh building up my collection i at the time it was still dvd and i found a collection that had all of the original the episode four, five, and six with the original theatrical cut and the updated remastered um, special effects and all that stuff. The director, I guess the director's cut. So I've got, I've got both and it, they really are. They're, they're so good. They're so <laughs> fun. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I just love, I just love all the stuff. I mean, I don't know if you can see my shelf, but <laughs> I, Star Trek shelf, Star Trek shelf random sci-fi so i've got like doctor who mm -hmm. and star wars and battlestar galactica and a couple of other things cool. <laughs> <laughs> um so getting into star trek what was the first star trek you were introduced to was it tng because i mean you're you're a little younger than me i'm, I'm going to believe that you're not 20 years younger than me <laughs> You're only a few years younger than me, Millie. <laughs> um, so what was the what was the first Star Trek you were introduced to? It was, and I don't remember, I'm horrible with the names of things, but it was like the original, like with um with Kirk oh, and Spock and uh, yeah, Kirk and Spock and Oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah, that's like cool. that's I watched that and my mom loved those too. So I kinda They're I mean, it's so iconic. Yeah, you kind of you kind of come to it eventually. Like I was, I was introduced to TNG first, mm -hmm. Picard and Data and Worf and all those guys. Um, but then on my own, once I got older, I was like, you know what? I've never watched the original series. Let's let's check it out. And I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it was the '60s, so stuff was kind of a little more loosey goosey <laughs> uh, in terms of production and uh, cohesiveness of the narrative. But honestly, you know, if you if you look past some of the uh, you know, uh, cheap costumes and cheap sets and uh, occasional cheesy performance. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of the writing, they were doing some phenomenal stuff with the writing. I mean, you've got some legendary episodes dealing with uh, race issues, legendary episodes dealing with uh, socioeconomic issues, dealing with religion, dealing with government, dealing with all kinds of stuff, which in the 60s, 
was a big deal. Like they, you know, there weren't a lot of shows like hitting this stuff as hard as Star Trek was. And uh, I feel like that's that tradition has kind of carried over from the originals, uh, from the TOS era to Legacy Trek, and then now to New Trek. New New Trek is as diverse as is more diverse than any Star Trek. Um, but I feel like it's progressed that way. Um, how do you feel about the progression of diversity throughout the franchise, like from TOS to Discovery? We'll say. I mean, I think it's really amazing. And what you were talking about with like dealing with like real stuff, but I, something about it being with aliens, like they make it for everybody. Yeah. Like it's okay to actually talk about it. And it's just, it's such a natural part of the story because I've seen ones where they were like, you can f- tell that they're trying to make it a thing. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But in Star Trek, like it's always just kind of a part of it and a part of the like very real characters. And so- yeah. That's the kind of stuff that I always think, even though it's fiction, like it could change someone's perspective because yeah. you're seeing like such a someone who feels very real experience mm. something that feels so real that like it makes you think. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think there's a big tendency to maybe maybe from an outsider's perspective looking in to think, oh, it's a sci fi show. It's spaceships. It's aliens. It's pew, pew, pew. It's all that. But really, uh, I've always said, like, we don't identify with the ship. We identify with the crew. And when you identify with the crew and that crew is presented with an issue, uh, you know, some sort of moral dilemma, we kind of go on that journey with them. And that causes us to look inside and say, like, how do I feel about this? Have I even is this something that I even considered? Um I like the fact that uh, we've that we've get, we've got so much diversity in front of and behind the camera. I think we're getting some of the best storytelling that we've had in the franchise ever, um, and that's always been uh, an interesting topic because people feel very very strongly about these stories and this this mythology. Uh, you know, following Starfleet, you know, starting in the 24th century or 23rd century, 23rd century. And uh, yeah, it's it's been really fascinating because we we do identify with these characters along those lines. Do you remember a character from any particular show that you kind of identified with or were attracted to their narrative or their their storyline? Did any character stick out for you? Yeah, in the um, this I mean, this is in Discovery, but this is my favorite character across all. Mm-hmm. Um, Tilly, I love her character. She Tilly's great, and just like even when stuff's bad, mm-hmm. like her kindness to everyone is just that is my favorite thing to see. Like no matter the difficult situation, mm-hmm. to have a character who is just kind, I feel like yeah. that's really, especially with like. I don't know. A lot of people disagree, especially nowadays, but like someone who even no matter what, no matter who it is, is just like a genuinely nice person. Yeah. I just love that. (laughs) Yeah. It's such a wonderful thing. Sorry. Any motion outside and it puts my dog on high alert. (laughs) Sorry about that. Yeah. I think with Tilly being so kind, um, it is nice to see someone who is just kind and not because oh it's their function on the ship 
kind of like Deanna Troy. Like she's, I mean, she's a good person, but like, she's also the ship's counselor. Like that's her role. And, you know, Wesley. Okay. But he's a, he's a kid. He's, you know, he's got that um, naive sort of friendly, happy go lucky air about him. But Tilly is an adult who's yes, at the beginning of her Starfleet career, but she's just a nice person that's it <laughs> like she's a brilliant scientist oh my gosh yes <laughs> truly really brilliant um but on top of that she's just nice i mean you stamets is a brilliant scientist he's a little rough around the edges he's a little bit prickly especially in those early episodes um you know and everybody's kind of you know burnham raised by vulcans so she's got that you know, mm, you know stoic <laughs> like i'm mostly vulcan <laughs> uh type thing going for her um, you know, part of what I found so interesting about Lorca as a character was him trying to fit in while also being it, it was it was a it was a fine line that he was treading. And I really found that very interesting. And we I've talked before on more recent episodes that while the name of the show is Discovery, it's not just the name of the ship. Each one of these characters is on a journey of discovery, be it from within or as they journey out into the galaxy. You know, Saru, <clears throat> Saru is on a, dis on a on a journey of discovery of anything and everything outside of his people. Um, his people have not a, have not achieved warp. So the fact that he's in Starfleet, everything's new to him. And that's really fascinating because he approaches it very almost monk-like of just kind of, we all exist here together. Like, you know, we can all, we can all live, you know, so there, there's that great aspect. And um, Giorgio, the original Giorgio, <laughs> um, was also very, was also very kind, very understanding. And I thought it was so great to see her with Burnham in this mother figure, sister figure, best friend, mentor type relationship that kind of encompassed all of those things. Um, and then because we identify so much with them and their relationship, when she is ripped away from Burnham, all we've got left is Burnham. And mm -hmm. now seeing Mirror Giorgio, Empress Giorgio brought into the, brought into, you know, into the, into focus it, it brings about all these weird feelings uh, for us as viewers, certainly for Burnham. Um, but we are seeing, you know, and because of all that stuff, some some big decisions have to be made and they are tough decisions, moral dilemmas, like we, you know, discussed a few minutes ago, these moral dilemmas, which brings us to this episode where we, it, it's do or die time. Like the war has gone off the rails we are not in a super safe space. It's time to put up or shut up. And we're kind of at our, we're kind of at the end of our rope. How do you feel about what happens and the decisions of Admiral Cornwell regarding things that transpire in this episode? How, how do we feel about the decision-making process here of Starfleet? Well, it's it's very interesting because it it feels, but I don't want to like get into any spoilers or anything. But it's okay. We don't we I, don't answer to anybody but ourselves. <laughs> it feels like Starfleet and then Burnham 
they like flipped with their opinions compared to the very beginning of the show. And so it's kind of, you come into it and, and the decision-making process, it like, it, I don't know, I was kind of shocked as to how all the characters who disagreed with her so vehemently at the beginning now agreed with her, but she now had a new perspective. And so then it's like she's fighting with kind of, it felt like like she's fighting with herself at the start, even though it's all these other characters. Like it felt like she was fighting her own decision-making process, which is very, I don't know. That's kind of how I felt about <laughs> about it. Because it was Cornwall and all of them, but it, it did really feel like more she was fighting with herself. There was also with the decisions, I, like how how quickly are we allowed to jump into stuff or should we wait? Uh you know what? Let's. You know what? I think we should probably just jump into the recap and then because it sounds like we're getting into pretty deep territory. Yes. Yeah, because there's some like big stuff. Okay. <laughs> characters. Yeah, uh, this one's chock full of things. So, uh, without further ado, let's get to this week's recap. Brought to you in part by our Patreon supporters: Rev J, Jerry Antimano, Cosmic Crit, Kitty B, and David Willett. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. The only way to defeat fear is to tell it no. No, we will not allow desperation to destroy the path to righteousness. No, we will not break the rules that protect us from our basest instincts. The Klingons are on the verge of wiping out the Federation. We do not have the luxury of principle. That is all we have. The Klingons close in on Earth as Discovery approaches Quonos. Burnham muses on fear and how to defeat it. I don't care! Saru expresses to Burnham unease at having to follow the orders of the former Terran Emperor, which Burnham notes was a request of the Federation. She then attempts to expose Giorgio's origins by quizzing her on her counterpart's birthplace in Malaysia. The former emperor deflects the questioning easily, ordering the specialist to walk with her. Out in the corridor, Giorgio warns Burnham to knock it off, or she'll find herself in the brig. Burnham comments on the Federation's desperation in giving Giorgio command, which Giorgio notes was in exchange for her freedom, and that Burnham's actions in Episode 2 failed because of her lack of follow-through. Burnham demands to know the real plan. Giorgio tells her that the Federation is losing the war and that Burnham must decide whether she will stand with her or against her. And on that note, we cue the music. Giorgio and Burnham visit Laurel in the brig. Giorgio displays a map of Quonos and asks Lorel for the best place for a landing party to beam down. After Lorel refuses, Giorgio enters the cell to torture her for the info. Burnham says there is another way. The two visit Tyler, who has the memories of Voke, and he agrees to help. How convenient! Later, Burnham explains the plan to release a drone to map the surface of the planet for military targets. Tyler states that the best place to do that is a shrine to Malor that's now an Orion outpost. Giorgio decides that Tyler will accompany Burnham and Giorgio, as well as Tilly, who's assigned the task of carrying the drone. I guess. 
Discovery then jumps to Quonos and beams down the landing party. The party arrives at the outpost and offers to trade Nausicaan weapons for 2,000 Darsex. Whatever that means. The four enter a bar. Tyler and Burnham go elsewhere to buy the info they need. Giorgio purchases some special time with a couple of Orions, and Tilly hangs out with Clint Howard. <gasps> Tyler and Burnham visit a cabaret where a game is being played that Tyler is familiar with through Vogue's memories, while Burnham is clearly upset by the Klingons' laughter. Clint Howard offers Tilly some volcanic vapor, which makes her pass out. Chicks cannot hold his smoke. That's what it is. Tyler tells Burnham none of the Klingons he played with were aware of the shrine. She tells him the story of how her parents were killed by Klingons at Doctori Alpha. As they killed her parents, they laughed. Burnham now sees the planet as an actual home for people, not just the enemy. Tyler observes some Klingons who appear to be followers of Malor and goes to ask them about the shrine. After she's had her fun. Business hours are over, baby. Giorgio attacks the two Orions for info about the shrine's location. Meanwhile, Tilly comes to and Clint Howard explains that the volcanic vapors she inhaled are fresh from the source and that Tilly's info about the volcanoes being extinct is wrong. Tilly realizes that a drone wouldn't be able to do its work in an active volcano. Prompting her to open the case, she sees a hydro bomb instead of a drone. She tries to call Burnham on her communicator, but is knocked out by Giorgio. Tyler and Burnham meet with Tilly, who explains that detonating the bomb that Giorgio has now stolen from them in an active volcano would lead to an apocalyptic explosion that would render the planet uninhabitable. Burnham calls Saru on Discovery to have Giorgio beamed up, or the bomb beamed up, but the shrine is shielded. Someday she just can't get rid of a bomb. Saru wants to contact Starfleet, but Burnham believes Giorgio is following Starfleet's orders. She requests a conversation with Cornwell. Burnham pleads with Cornwell that genocide is not the way to end the war. Cornwell responds that they don't have the luxury of principles. Burnham knows that Cornwell sent the Emperor because she'd do what Starfleet officers couldn't. She then notes that a year ago, prior to Episode 2, she thought survival was more important than principles, but that she now knows that she was wrong. Burnham threatens another mutiny to prove who they are as Starfleet officers, and unlike her last mutiny, the crew stands to support her. Cornwell asks Burnham for an alternative. Back on Quonos, Burnham finds Giorgio in the shrine and tells her that she can either turn over the detonator and leave with her freedom, or kill her and escape with the Federation hunting her down as long as she's alive. Giorgio can't kill her and gives the detonator to Burnham. Whoa, that was close. <laughs> However, Burnham doesn't want it and calls in Tyler and Laurel. As an alternative to her home planet being destroyed, Burnham offers Laurel the detonator, which she can then use to unify the great houses under her rule. Tyler tells Burnham outside the shrine that he is going to go with Laurel and try to help both sides, as he is no good to either side alone. They share a bittersweet kiss, and he departs. Well, this sucks. Laurel addresses the Klingon houses and tells them that she is the leader to fulfill Takuvma's call for unity. The Klingons present scoff at her claim until she shows them the detonator. Burnham meets with Amanda Grayson in Paris outside a Federation building. 
Burnham thanks her for her advice about not forgetting her humanity, something which Burnham did not appreciate until now. Sarek arrives and tells Burnham how he's grateful that she found an alternative, and he informs her that the president of the United Federation of Planets is grateful as well. He hands Burnham her Starfleet badge and informs her that she's been pardoned, reinstated, and her record has been expunged. And there was much rejoicing. The Discovery crew are each presented with the Medal of Honor. Great. Including Culber posthumously. Stamets is promoted to Lieutenant Commander and Tilly is given the rank of Ensign and accepted to the Command Training Program. Great. Discovery leaves with Saru in command as acting captain to take Sarek to Vulcan, as well as to pick up their new commanding officer. Sucks. Stamets tells Burnham and Tilly that Starfleet wants to find a non-human interface with the spore drive. Great. And as such, it will not be used. Sucks. In transit, Discovery receives a Priority One distress call. After some initial difficulty, the call is identified as being from Captain Pike, the commander of the USS Enterprise. Ooh, that's interesting. And then... How dare you? How dare you put your hands on me, you filth! Wanted for 30 counts of smuggling. 20 counts of homicide. Transportation of stolen goods. And you slept with my sister. Oh. I'm a bad, bad man. Maybe I have been falsely accused once or twice. Short Trucks continues with the escape artist. A masked woman brings Harry Mudd as a prisoner to a Tellarite bounty hunter. The Tellarite purchases him from her. Mud first tries a fear-based approach to get out of the situation by exclaiming, When my associates get word of this brutality, you'll find yourself on the wrong end of a disintegration beam. When that doesn't get a response, he tries to bargain with the woman. The Tellarite phaser whips Mud across the face and asks, I bet you never thought you'd see this face again, did you? The Tellarite reintroduces himself to the forgetful Mud as Tevrin Crit and explains they met some time ago when Mud slept with his sister and stole their family's sacred cudgel. Mud denies this happened, says he doesn't even know what a cudgel is, and begins his swindler routine about being a gentleman of the highest caliber. Tevrin shuts him up by showing him his picture on the bounty advertisement which reads, 30 counts of smuggling, 20 counts of attempted homicide, 1 count of attempted regicide, several counts of transportation of stolen goods, and one count of penetrating a space whale. <gasps> the last of which Mud counters with, you had to be there. Tevrin says, I'm sure you're used to worming your way out of situations like this, but not today. Mud assures him that he's never been in a situation like this before, but that triggers a few memories for him. Mud recalls a similar situation with a Klingon bounty hunter, then states that he may have been falsely accused once or twice in the past, but the accusations really are all false, and he surely hasn't been in a situation as serious as this one. Mud says he recalls the romantic encounter he had with Tevrin's sister as a forbidden tryst, and admits he does remember stealing the cudgel to keep as a memento of their secret love, but unfortunately has since sold it. Therefore, handing Mud to Starfleet won't get him the cudgel back, since there's no way of knowing where it is now. Tevrin doubles down, so Mud plays the poor unfortunate soul routine, claims he's a resistance fighter, 
the Federation is trying to consolidate power, yada, yada, yada. Mud leans into the bit by saying he and Teverin aren't so different after all. Teverin asks, has that line ever worked on anyone? Mud recalls another encounter with an unusually small, unusually strong female bounty hunter, but compliments Teverin on being a better captor than her. Teverin says he thought Mud was supposed to be rich, to which Harry counters that if he had any money, he'd be sipping jippers on a beach somewhere instead of here. Mud remembers a time when he was held hostage by a couple of Orions and was bargaining with a male guard promising him a lifetime's worth of money if he lets him go. The guard begins to fantasize about his life as a rich man. A female guard walks in to relieve him, telling the male guard they've got cameras in here and have heard everything the two of them have said. Harry tries to seduce her, but she electrocutes him. Heaven's ship has dropped out of warp at the Federation starship Demilo, and they're ready to receive Mud, who's now begging. The transporter operator greets them and begins to ask what he can do for them until he sees Mud. The officer gives a disappointed sigh and asks both of them to follow him. As they walk the corridor of the ship, the officer asks Tegrin if he bought Mr. Mud off a tall female bounty hunter. Tevrin said he had, but they made a deal, and the bounty is all his. The officer says he's not refuting that, but his transaction with the female bounty hunter means this isn't the real mud. The officer opens a door to a small cargo hold, where at least seven mud androids are talking incessant nonsense to one another. Meanwhile, We then see the female bounty hunter's ship in an unknown location. One brings her a beverage and she takes off her mask and wig, revealing she is the real Mud in disguise, using his own bounty and imprisonment as a means of profit. Mud makes another deal with an unknown caller and before ending the call, asks if they're interested in a slightly used cudgel. And so on. Oh my gosh, you guys, I'm so excited to tell you about this. Hey folks, it's your old pal, Mr. Todd A. Davis here from the Computer Resume Podcast. Get ready to boldly go where, well, thousands have gone before. It's TrekFest 38! Yay! June 23rd and 24th in Riverside, Iowa. Hey! Is this heaven? No. It's Iowa. Come enjoy all kinds of free activities for you and your whole family. This year's event will feature Chase Masterson from Deep Space Nine, some of the best bands in the area on the Riverside Casino and Golf Resort sponsored main stage, food, drinks, and yours truly will be doing some hosting and emceeing. I'll be upset if you don't come get a selfie with me. For more info about this year's TrekFest, visit them on Facebook at Riverside TrekFest or on the web at trekfest.org. That's T-R-E-K-F-E-S-T dot org. Riverside isn't just where the best begins, it's where Trek begins. Now, back to the show. So, yeah, we see a lot of things going on here with uh, this episode and this short. Let's start with the episode. Uh, now, before we went into the recap, we started talking about the decision-making process of Emperor Giorgio, who's under the guise as Captain Giorgio, but is also dealing with Admiral Cornwell at the behest of Starfleet. Um, how do we feel about the decision-making process to just kill the entire planet? 
I mean, it seems like because they were really losing. They were in a situation of desperation and fear. And so they kind of reacted in response Mm -hmm. to that desperation and fear, which does connect right back to the first episode when we have Michael Burnham seeing the people who killed her family, right? Yeah. Reacting that exact same way. Only now in this final episode, she's completely flip-flopped with Starfleet. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say though, while like Cornwell and them changing their opinion, and Michael was a big deal. The biggest to me was Saru. Oh, okay, all right. Because he is that monk-like, very following the rules, going with Starfleet type of figure. Mm-hmm. So when Burnham stands up and says genocide isn't the answer, and suggests a mutiny for him to go against Starfleet and stand up with her. That was an even bigger deal because that's yeah. such a shift for his character. Yeah, absolutely. I, and knowing knowing how much that first mutiny and the loss of the original Giorgio affected Saru, you're absolutely right. This is huge. I had not considered that. This is That is a huge, huge step, not only for Saru personally, but in sort of distancing himself from his own experiences and siding with a person that he may still have, he may be still harboring some some negativity towards. I don't want to say uh, too harsh a word there, but yeah, it's, you know, th- and they, they mended things some time ago, but Saru was so adamant about wanting to learn from Giorgio who we see in another short trek is the one who picked him up from his planet and brought him to Starfleet. The connection between Giorgio and Saru was heavy. It was really, really heavy. And it absolutely broke his heart when she passed away. And to then find out that his one of his closest confidants, um, Burnham, is essentially responsible for that death, that destroyed that relationship so yeah you're absolutely right this is such a huge huge thing um for me kind of looking at this because i don't know that i necessarily absorbed this the first time i watched but you know on this show we're covering the entire franchise in chronological order and we just got done talking about enterprise which a big driving force in season three of enterprise um, the the Zindi War was obviously the events of 9-11. So looking at this narrative now where Starfleet, as a comparison for governments, um, giving the okay for uh, any mean, by any means necessary type of directive. And it's, you know, and then the people stand up and, and are essentially ready to go toe-to-toe with the government, I wonder if that was informed by things happening in our world at that time. Um, This discovery premiered 2017. 2016 was a big shift in our government. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And a a lot of things changed, and we really haven't seen a lot of improvement since then. Um, Some, but we're, we're we are not anywhere closer to Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future, that's for <laughs> sure. Uh, but yeah, I, how do you feel about the idea of you know of this being 
Uh, well, so, you know, I've mentioned before on the show that sci-fi is kind of a mirror for society and that a lot of these things are actually cautionary tales in that, hey, this, ha I mean, and that goes back all the way to the original series. Um, how do we feel about this narrative as it may be, may be a reflection of things in our own world, things in our own society? How do we feel about that? I mean, it definitely makes sense because I hadn't really thought about the time period. That's yeah. true at a time when a lot of people disagreed and were going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the government to have that in a show where the people won out to fight against hating people, even people who made it clear they hated them to say like, no, we still won't give that back to you. We'll just yeah. give back like that kind of that. I don't, I, it wouldn't necessarily be like a kindness because they were still threatening them with an explosive device, yeah. but it's that kind of more of like a respect and understanding that they are also people mm -hmm. trying to live their lives. I think, I mean, especially at that time, that's very meaningful <laughs> to, especially in a time when, you know, in the show, it is very life or death. Like oh, yeah. they're amidst war. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the idea of we are amidst a war, whether it is an official war or a perceived war. Um, and I think the, I think the, Two big things to take away from that are let's not jump to rash decisions because that's going to do nothing but result in loss of life. But also it behooves you to be informed. And I'll say for myself, I'm not very informed. This this watching watching this and seeing Tilly, who again, we've praised her this episode so far for not only being kind, but also being a really good scientist. She puts two and two together very fast of like, oh, this is going to destroy the planet. <laughs> so in that, hey, voting is important. Being informed is important. Knowing what's going on in the world around you is important. Look both ways before you cross the street. That's called being informed. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this is this is a thing where I think the call to action is, hey, folks, pick up a newspaper. Pick up a book, watch the news, maybe not all the time. You don't necessarily have to be married to it or anything, but like inform yourself when these votes come along, even if they're smaller elections, local elections, get informed and make a decision, like be involved in that process. Um, you know, I think had more people done that with an open mind and used reason and logic, um, <laughs> You know, we could have avoided so many things. You know, they talk about it here in Discovery. A few years later, uh, in terms of production, we've got Pike standing in front of these two warring bodies on this planet. He beams down into the middle of them. He's like, hey, sorry to interrupt. Uh, so let me tell you about my planet we, where we almost destroyed ourselves. <laughs> and they show footage from like CNN of like, the riots and the insurrection and stuff like that. And, you know, as a fan, I was like, oh man, that's kind of cool that it's, and then I was like, oh yeah, that's not so cool. Like, oh, <laughs> that, ew, yeah, oh, please peace. Let's, <laughs> let's find common ground. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's work together. Yeah. Let's, you know, you know, I I've said this a couple of times and maybe it's getting cheesy and cliched at this point, but I've always said like, look, if we're going to reach the stars, we have to reach sideways first because nobody gets there alone. Um, any other 
thoughts about uh, this particular episode and the narratives when we've got a lot going on here um, to try to encapsulate it, but anything else about this episode before we move on to the short? Well, I think with what you said that what they do in the episode of humanizing someone who is the exact opposite completely disagrees with them Mm -hmm. and like making that understanding that they can both exist in the same world. I think that's especially important um because i don't know like i don't know i mean i'm jewish i've experienced you know some stuff with that but what i've found is most people like it's not the majority of people it's not a true hate in their heart they're just a human being who doesn't understand or like hasn't had a conversation where someone didn't treat them like i don't know like if you have a conversation with most people and talk to them like they're a human being i feel like that's the only way you can really change people's minds because if you come at people with like anger and that fear it makes other people respond in anger and fear yeah yeah oh gosh that's a that's a great perspective yeah i uh i uh you know being straight white and male (laughs) haven't dealt with that a lot um but yeah you know the idea uh you know in my experience as a law enforcement officer um you know seen a lot where hate fear And being uninformed has led to terrible consequences, uh, be it personal or, uh, you know, property or uh, professional. Hell, we're both comedians. (laughs) We are tasked with writing something that appeals across the board. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that doesn't work. (laughs) Have you ever uh, have you ever had something where you did a bit and it was just like, oh, 85% of the room is on board with me. I'm going to have to watch out for that other 15. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, like that. I performed at like a very liberal college, which are notoriously very particular about how comedy is and like doing it okay. Yeah. Um, and so, of course, I tried things there that just like didn't work. But it, I think you have, especially with comedy, you have to let people try it. <laughs> And then they learn, okay, that's not for me to tell. Or like, that's really not my wheelhouse for comedy. Um, (laughs) And so, although I, yeah. So I think, I don't know. You have to be okay with that people are still still learning (laughs) to be good at it. But I learned a ton of stuff doing comedy there and trying to appeal to people who like really are are like ready to to get up there and pull anybody off stage. Oh, Um, sure. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, um, whether I put myself out there or not, I've quite a few times have played the role of mentor to Mm -hmm. younger comics, uh, mostly because that's what I wanted as a young comic. (laughs) Um, But I have more than once been asked, oh, what can you say? What can't you say on stage? My answer has always been, and will probably continue to be, it's not what you can or can't say on stage. It's what can you say mm-hmm. or can't say on stage. And that goes back to, you know, look at look at some professional comedians who tell the dirtiest of jokes, the most risque of jokes, like the very triggering jokes, triggering material. More often than not, is somebody running up on stage, pulling them off? No, there's a reason for that. They are professional comedians who have done this a lot for not years, decades. <laughs> they are so familiar with the process and 
their audience that they can craft the thing and speak about a particular touchy subject and and are able to pull it off. Not every open micer is going to have a killer bit about rape. It's not going to happen. No. <laughs> or or race or pick a topic. And I've seen I've seen comedians, comedians you and I know who have tried something and were confronted mm. at the show and I stood by <laughs> like okay, this, this could turn ugly real quick. But luckily that person had enough wherewithal to uh, be accept, uh, be accepting of criticism and begin a dialogue, which is exactly how it should be. Hey, start a dialogue of like, oh, you know what? I'm new at this. I appreciate your perspective. I didn't realize that. Thank you. Now I know. Now I can go back and fix it. If I can't fix it, I know I probably ought to lose that. I mean- there's been times where even I've gone to, um, you know, different friends and stuff and was like, hey, look, I've got this bit. It's a new it's a new thing. It's a little it's a little edgy. Let me run, let me run it by you and get get some fresh perspective here. There's nothing wrong with doing that. As a community of comedians, we kind of thrive on that sort of thing where, you know, something might sound great upstairs, but and look OK on the piece of paper. But when it hits somebody else's ears, they're bringing in their experience and their uh their life and all of that to it that you could never bring so yeah the idea of establishing that dialogue uh again going and reaching sideways so that we can all get there together is such an important thing anything else uh anything else about this episode before we move on well this kind of conversation brought me back to what we talked about at the very beginning hmm. um about like diversity and how they've expanded the story and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And it makes yeah. me think, um, this is a quote from somebody on Saturday Night Live, I forget who said it, but they said, the thing about diversity is that it's not like people are intentionally excluding that kind of material, but when you don't have people in the room, you miss out on all this amazing stuff that you could write and create because you're missing that perspective. Yeah. And I think like the value of having many perspectives in that and in comedy and in the show, like it gets better because you have so many more ideas to work with. That you would never have otherwise. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a great perspective. So now we see a, a big shift here from the <laughs> end of the world scenario to what kind of bucket of syrup has Mud gotten him, gotten himself into now? Uh, right off the bat, how do we feel about Mud? Or well, I should say Rain Wilson's portrayal of Harry Mud. How do you feel about him? I mean. I, I just love Rain Wilson yeah. overall. But this character is I this is just one of my favorite characters through the show and the other because he's such a different energy. You have yeah. all these people dealing with very serious situations, taking it very seriously. Mm -hmm. And he's just kind of out in the world taking stuff, causing problems, <laughs> like just conning people and just having fun with it and not really worrying yeah. about. So it's. It's nice to kind of shift to that kind of character, even though he is a villain. I don't know. Yeah, it it yeah. kind of brings like a fun and a comedy and a lightness that I think you need. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think it's very important. And, you know, looking at different forms of Star Trek, uh, specifically Lower Decks, which is obviously a comedy, there's a big vein of people out there who are like, Star Trek's not supposed to be funny. Hold on. <laughs> You've got hundreds, if not thousands of people on this, on these starships. 
but we follow a grand total of 10 of them. Do you honestly think there's not some knuckleheads on the lower decks <laughs> getting into getting into shenanigans and whatnot? That's it's a very real, it's a very real experience. Now, in terms of Harry Mudd, you know, I hesitate to call him a villain. I mean, if we're if we're narrowing if we're narrowing it down to hero and villain, yeah, I guess he would fall into the category of villain. But I think he really is the ne'er do well. He's not. He's he's kind of a he's he's definitely out for himself. But I don't know that he's specifically malicious. You know what I mean? He's he's not con. He's not one of these other people who's out for blood. He's out for profit. Um, and I think honestly, if there was going to be another, I, I know that there's rumors about a bunch of Star Trek series that may potentially be in the works. I think one of them should be mud. I think we should follow mud as kind of a Danny ocean who just isn't nearly as good or as charming as Danny ocean. <laughs> I think that would be a lot of fun of just kind of like, all right, what kind of what kind of uh, scheme, what kind of con is he trying to pull off this week? Does he does he succeed? Well, maybe a little bit, but not necessarily uh, with the kind of success that Danny Ocean and his crew normally uh, wind up with. Uh, how do you feel about like a mud led Star Trek series? How would you feel yes, about that? Absolutely. We need it. <laughs> I want more of it because you're right. He's not because you like him you know he yeah. can't be that much of a villain if you you want that you want more of him you really like him yeah. and i also am just so curious about his character like backstory wise i think that would be interesting too to flashbacks when he's younger as to like like how did he get into this yeah also i want to know how he got in the space well i like i need more details <laughs> about how he did that because they don't really really dive into it and <laughs> Melly, that's called bestiality and that is not the kind of show that i'm trying to run here <laughs> and now you know a little bit more about Melly, folks no uh <laughs> no i think uh yeah i mean if we were if we're kind of uh you know brainstorming about a star trek show that'll obviously never happen I think a, a fun way to approach that content would maybe be a young Harry Mudd who maybe he got, he he has such a beef with Starfleet. Maybe he flunked out of the Academy and maybe a couple of other cadets didn't wind up uh, cutting the mustard as it were with Starfleet. So they form a little crew. Um, it might be a little, uh, it might be a little Firefly-ish where they're not exactly pirates, but they're kind of like, con artists who are kind of doing the thing i i would watch a mini series like maybe a mini series you know four to six episodes of them just kind of getting into it uh but you mentioned something about his past and in this episode or this short rather we see a lot of his memories informing the uh informing the narrative here how do we feel about the narrative structure of kind of these overlapping memories to create this cohesive narrative it sounds to me very much like inception and uh maybe uh what's the other what's the other one um memento where it's kind of the past and the present are sort of overlapping to create this unique perspective narrative how do we feel about the structure i thought it was a great way to do it especially because we know he's a con man already 
Yeah. But the other characters don't. So it's kind of that fun thing where the audience is in on it. I mean, the other characters do, but they keep getting fooled. So right. you, you get to watch it. <laughs> but every time it's when he tells a lie, then you often go back and see that he's lying and that yeah. he's done it many times before and somehow it works still. And that's what was so fun to me. It's like you get to see his lie and then him do it to, again. And yeah. it's just. He's yeah. got he's got the deck. He's got the deck of schemes. And it's just kind of like, all right, which one are we going to pull out of the deck? And let's go with poor, unfortunate soul. No, that one doesn't work. How about aggressive? No, that one doesn't work either. How about bargaining? Like, <laughs> And it's just kind of interesting to see uh, to see that that's his. That that's his play. It's just kind of like, all right, let's move on to plan B, plan C, plan C point two, you know, <laughs> like whatever. Oh man. Yeah. He's absolutely great. Um, anything else about the short stick out to you? I thought, um, you know, in kind of going a little bit deeper, like we do on these episodes, I thought uh, not only was the uh, production value through the roof in terms of production design, but looking at the different uh, makeup and prosthetic jobs on the different species that we've got here was really fantastic. We get we actually get to see a couple of Orions. We actually saw a couple of Orions in uh, in the main episode that we discussed, uh, which of course are known for uh, green skin and being very either piratey or very prostitutey. Um, so we actually get to see more pirate type Orions here, and you know the. The makeup jobs were just phenomenal, especially when you combine it with, you know, the lighting design and stuff like that. Any any thoughts about the production of Discovery and Short Treks? Because they are they do complement each other. Most of the narratives in Short Treks, you know, accentuate the stuff going on in Discovery. Any thoughts about the behind the scenes stuff? I mean, like what you were saying with the makeup, just for all the different characters and the fact that it's still makeup because a lot of different franchises they got older they switched to like all cgi mm -hmm. but i feel mm -hmm. like that commitment to actually doing the prosthetics it feels more real yeah and i and even in the short um with the aliens but also all of his different characters and all the details on each of them yeah. all the different you know versions mm -hmm. was very unique they were all completely different costumes and so that was especially impressive as to how did they come up with that many versions of the same person yeah. in one scene? Yeah, I, I think in terms of, uh, you know, well, you'll appreciate this as also uh, also being a fan of Star Wars. I am 100% for puppet Yoda as opposed to 100% digital Yoda. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Um, you know, there was there was a. There was a point there in cinema history where it was just kind of like, oh, we can create everything with digital effects. And the fans are going, it looks 100% fake. Like, <laughs> it does not look good. The technology is not there yet. But I think the people that do a great job with digital effects are good at combining it with practical effects. It's not meant to be the catch-all. It's meant to be the icing on the cake. You look at jj abrams star trek from 2009 there's a ton of digital effects but they are used to augment what is already on screen especially with the creatures or aliens you know in the prosthetic makeup they use little digital touches here and there to get that movement to look organic and it looks real 
Uh, and, you know, they do exactly that here with Discovery. It's not a secret that, you know, J.J. Abrams stuff starting in 2009 really informed the look of new Trek starting in 2017. And you think about how good 2009 Trek looked. Yeah, 2017 looks that much better. Um, so yeah, they're doing some wonderful stuff. Everybody, everybody behind the camera in every department seems to really just be batting a thousand. But as we do every episode, when you're looking at people involved in one of these productions, you have to ask the question as we do every week, lovingly, who do we blame? Mm -hmm. So, uh, will you take my hand? Uh, Gretchen J. Berg and Aaron Harberts wrote the teleplay based off of the story that they developed with the director, Akiva Goldsman. Uh, now, Gretchen J. Berg and Aaron Harberts uh, have been writers for a while, and they've worked on the series before. Their last episode that they wrote was Discovery Season 1, Episode 5, Choose Your Pain, which we discussed with uh, executive producer Kat Davis back on Episode 91. And as I mentioned, the director of this episode is Akiva Goldsman, whose last work was Discovery Season 1, Episode 3, Context is for Kings, which we discussed with Star Trek Prodigy's Bonnie Gordon back on Episode 89. Uh, in terms of guest stars, we got a bunch of familiar faces here. Michelle Yeoh, uh, Mia Kirshner returning as Amanda Grayson, Jane Brooke, uh, who just kills it as Admiral Cornwell, we've showered praise on her for her portrayal of Cornwell. Mary Chifo as Laurel, another one who does such a great job buried under prosthetics, but really hits all those emo emotional beats. And of course, we got James Frain as Sarek. But the person to note here is Clint Howard as an Orion drug dealer, a club rat, uh, Clint Howard. He's Clint Howard's playing an Orion Clint Howard. <laughs> I was just because I mean, and the reason I say that is because I went and looked up his IMDb page and he in real life kind of looks like he's spent a lot of time snorting volcanic vapor. <laughs> <laughs> That's just kind of how he looks every day, it seems like. Uh, but of course, Clint Howard, brother of Oscar winner Ron Howard, uncle of uh, Screen Actors Guild winner Bryce Dallas Howard. Uh, now, last in the timeline we saw him in Enterprise Season 1, Episode 19, Acquisition, as the Ferengi Pirate Muck, which we discussed with Gary Horn from the National Wrestling Alliance, the NWA, uh, back on Episode 17. That was a long time ago for us here. Uh, but his first credit, and the reason I'm going to hit some of his credits here is because I didn't do it last time. I had a lot to get through, and the show has evolved since then. <laughs> Uh, but his first credit was actually five episodes of The Andy Griffith Show uh, from 1962 to 1964. His first film was in uh, The Courtship of Eddie's Father in 1963. And then after a few uh, appearances on shows like The Fugitive, Bonanza, and The Patty Duke Show, his first appearance in the franchise was in TOS, the original series, Season one, episode 10, The Corbomite Maneuver as Baylock. And if you recall that episode, he is a wee lad in that, in that episode. <laughs> um, and then in 1967, 
He would lend his voice to the elephant in the Jungle Book. That was 1967. Mm -hmm. And then he would do 56 episodes of Gentle Ben from 1967 to 69. He appeared on the Red Skelton Hour, The Odd Couple, uh, The Virginian, Night Gallery, and then would graduate high school in 1977. (laughs) I know. Oh, my gosh. He did a lot of work as a kid. Um And then he was in a few films, uh, you know, some genres type stuff here. We got Rock and Roll High School in in 79, Night Shift in 82, Splash, Cocoon, Tango and Cash, The Rocketeer, a bunch of stuff. Like, I'm just hitting some highlights here. His his resume is extensive. Uh, But then uh, he would come to his his second appearance in the franchise, which was in Deep Space Nine. Season three, episode 12, Past Tense, part two. He played part of Grady, which was uh, directed by Jonathan Frakes. So uh, then we've got The Escape Artist, which was written by Mike McMahon. And if you don't know that name and you're a Star Trek fan, you should. Uh, he first worked in production as an assistant at Second City in Chicago. But then from there, he got uh, roped into some uh, some low-level production uh, work on seven episodes of Drawn Together. That was his first credit from 2006 to 2007. Then he worked on South Park out there in China, Illinois. And then uh, he would get a pretty big job here with Rick and Morty. Uh, From 2013 to 2020, he'd have a lot of different positions. He was a writer's assistant. He was a writer for 15 episodes, production supervisor and a producer. Two of the episodes he produced earned him two primetime Emmys, which were Pickle Rick, which is a great episode. Yes. And, um, as much as my wife hates it, she can't deny it's a good, it's a good episode. And of course, the Vat of Abs- the Vat of Acid episode. Uh, but his first writing credit was two episodes of Axe Cop in 2015. But this is his first work in the franchise, but not his last. Now, from what I've said so far, if you haven't pieced it together, He's a writer. He's worked a lot in animation. You guessed it, folks. He's the driving force behind Star Trek Lower Decks. Uh, and if you're not familiar with Rick and Morty, I've uh, put out there to folks that uh, it's Parks and, uh, you know, Lower Decks is Parks and Recreation um, with a little bit of Rick and Morty in the Star Trek universe. And that that's that's kind of how it goes. Uh, are you Rick and Morty fan? Yes. It's it's really good, isn't it? I really like it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and now I have to watch that because I haven't seen Lower Decks and now I have to watch it. Oh yeah. Do yourself a favor. If you've got, you know, Paramount Plus, Saturday morning, get yourself a bowl of cereal <laughs> and in your jammies, just jump in. It, you don't really need you don't really need any sort of background stuff to jump into lower decks uh, and you'll figure it out pretty soon. It takes place after Voyager. So that's kind of all you need to know. And it's about the lower decks and some of the ensigns that work on one of these big starships and the shenanigans they get into. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful series. I praise it all the time. (laughs) Um, But yes, uh, The Escape Artist is also directed by Mr. Rain Wilson, uh, who also plays Harry Mudd. Um, His last appearance in the franchise was was Discovery Season 1, Episode 7, Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad, which is a great bottle episode. Um, But we actually discussed that with Enterprise's 
Connor Trenier and Shuttlepod Show's Mark Cartier back on episode 93. That was a great discussion. Uh, since then, uh, Rain Wilson has voiced Lex Luthor in four more DC direct-to-video animated films. He participated in Home Movie, The Princess Bride, with a ton of Star Trek alum. Are you familiar with the Home Movie, Princess Bride? I think thing? I've seen a couple. Is that is it Paul Rudd is in that and some other people? Yeah, I think so. It, I, I think basically during the pandemic, everybody took out their cell phone and recorded themselves playing a part in The Princess Bride. So if you pull up home, uh, home movie, The Princess Bride, the cast list is enormous, but it's all one episode and there's multiple people playing Buttercup and Wesley and Fezzik and uh, Indigo Montoya and all that's it, it is it is so it's super low budget, uh, but it's so much fun to hear all these different actors playing these wonderful roles. Uh, highly, highly recommend it. Um, but yeah, it's kind of a you could actually play a drinking game if you watch it from beginning to end. Is take a shot whenever you see someone who's been on Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> You will be hammered by the end of this thing. <laughs> There's a ton of Star Trek people in it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this was kind of, uh, it was a really, it was a lot of fun to to see this. Um, it was kind of like watching all the Star Trek actors uh, when I was out in LA, watching these Star Trek actors bring to life Neil Simon's classic comedy, The Odd Couple. And just seeing them kind of embody these different roles and play this thing together on stage was so wonderful. But anyways, I'm digressing here. Um, Rain Wilson was also in Jerry and Marge Go Large, uh, speaking of heist movies and con movies, uh, which came out in 2022. He played Bill, which is available now on Paramount+. Plus. Uh, the movie stars Brian Cranston and Annette Benning. Basically, this older couple who figure out a loophole in the lottery system and the events unfold from there. Uh, and of course, uh, recently here, Rain Wilson played Dr. Demento in Weird, the Al Yankovic story, which stars Daniel Radcliffe and Diedrich, Diedrich Bader and Lin-Manuel Miranda. Uh, have you seen that? No, I have not. Although I, mean, I feel like Daniel Radcliffe is always in like... Stuff I would not think that he was going to be in, you know. Well, considering um, considering the guys that made everything everywhere all at once made the movie Swiss Army Man, which stars Daniel Radcliffe. Mm -hmm. If you haven't seen Swiss Army Man, it's such a good movie. Every, everybody's like, "Oh, it's about a farting corpse." Like, it's not about a farting corpse. A farting corpse is prominently featured. <laughs> But it's a really, really good movie. Uh, highly, it's like, it's it's more emotional than people probably realize or want to give it credit for, but it's a really, really good movie. Um, but yeah, that's some some good stuff there. Uh, thank you to all those people involved uh, in bringing these Star Trek things to life. Uh, I really enjoyed this episode and this short. They're really good. Um, so let's get to the question that we ask our guest every week. Is this essential viewing? If somebody is sitting down and watching Star Trek for the very first time and they come to these to this episode and this short, are these ones that they can skip or are these must see entries in the franchise? So I think I mean, this final episode of season one of Disco I feel like it's very important yeah, yeah, for very for the 
for the whole plot and especially with the character development and them running into at the very end, right? Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. USS Enterprise. It like comes full circle connecting other stuff. Like you have to see it. <laughs> I think definitely. Yeah, for sure. Um, the short is very fun. I would say if you want to laugh, definitely. I mean, it's not essential, but I'd watch it. I really would. Yeah. I, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. I feel like if you, if you've hung on to discovery through this first season, don't stop now. Like you got to watch this last thing. And of course that last shot, like you said, with the enterprise pulling up, it was like, Oh, what are they going to do now? Um, is, is really a lot of, it was really a lot of fun and it really does wrap up a lot of different character arcs. Uh, so yeah, it's absolutely essential. The short is fan service. It's kind of like, Hey, if you liked the the two episodes that you got to see Rain Wilson play Harry Mudd, here's one more. You know, here's here's a short one of just him. Uh, so it is fan service, but at the same time, I feel like it was a really good glimpse of what a Star Trek actor can bring in terms of direction. You know, you look at a lot of the TNG era, excuse me, the legacy Trek era actors who have become amazing directors. Jonathan Frakes, LeVar Burton, Robert Duncan McNeil, Roxanne Dawson. Oh my God, Roxanne Dawson is such a good director. Love her stuff. Um, and there's others. There's there's a bunch. So, you know, I feel like Rain Wilson is such a is such a creative force that I love getting to see him take the reins of this. Pardon the pun. Um, you know, get control of a small sliver of this franchise and what he can do with it. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Uh, Melly, thank you so much for, uh, carving out the time to, uh, to sit with me and nerd out over, over Star Trek. This has been an absolute blast. I hope you've had a good time. Do you have any parting thoughts before we start wrapping it up? Um, there was one more thing I oh, wanted to yes. talk about just really quick with the final episode. I forgot until yeah, right yeah, now. Yeah. Bring it. But the Tyler's decision at the end to go yeah. with the like to help, even though this person like really traumatized him and put him through all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That felt like a very big part and such a big deal that he like to help everyone tried to put all the stuff that he'd experienced like aside and think about this bigger picture. Yeah, I think it calls into question well i mean it does for me of like is is that a is that a healthy decision to make like mm -hmm. is that you know is that for someone who has endured a lot of trauma at the hands of this person regardless of how your counterpart felt about her you know it's the tuvix thing like okay are you two people or are you one person who i mean because it's, I mean, they say like we put his psychology on top of Tyler. So now, you know, once Laurel did the procedure to separate the two, now Tyler fully in control, but with access to Volk's memories. Like, I don't know. And maybe I'm speaking out of turn here. Maybe I'm just coming at it with my, with my dumb perspective. But like, that seems like a not super healthy decision to make. Um, in terms of like the war's just wrapping up, we might 
you might be better served with Starfleet, (laughs) you know, letting them know, hey, we just ended the war. Here's some things you need to know about Klingons, like, (laughs) and just give them the bullet point list. Um, I don't know. Uh, Thoughts about that? I don't know. I think maybe that having the other memories of that person, like, Mm -hmm. that had to have an impact. Like, yeah. And, you know, I think, I don't know if it's the healthiest decision either, like, for him as an individual. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I suppose you can get into comparisons of people who, um, uh, 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 folks who, um, folks who transition, you know, uh, transgender folks. And I'm, I'm going to be careful about how I phrase things because I'm, I'm dumb and I don't want to <laughs> upset anybody, but it calls into the question of like the past life versus the transition to the new life. And, all of the stuff that goes along with that, I think maybe there's a comparison to be made there of choosing one and rejecting the other. And is that, you know, is that, you know, or, or can, can you somehow marry the two into a full cohesive narrative of a life? Maybe, maybe I'm drawing conclusions and making comparisons where there aren't any, but just on the surface level of my dumb brain, my my thoughts go to like you just endured a lot of trauma at the hands of this person do you have some stockholm syndrome of like identifying now with your captor so now you're going with them i i i i think that relationship could definitely be explored more and his decision making process and of course if you've watched discovery so far we know that we get into their relationship a little bit more down the road and we learn that it's not so simple. There's a lot of things to consider. Uh, but yeah, any other, any other uh, thoughts about that before we, uh, or, or parting thoughts about the episodes, uh, the franchise as a whole, your experience on this podcast before we start wrapping it up? Um, I don't know. I've had a ton of fun <laughs> getting to talk about Star Trek and nerd out about stuff. This is like... <laughs> Um, yeah, but I don't know about the episode. I feel like those were my main, yeah, main thoughts about it. But no, yeah, great. it's been really fun to watch it all. Oh, and we've we've had an absolute blast talking with you. <laughs> well, folks, uh, this is the end of Computer Resume Podcast Season Five. Yay! Good for us. <laughs> um, so I want to take a few uh, minutes, and I'd like to thank everyone I've recorded with and met this season. Uh, Professor Caroline Davis, Shuttlepod Show's Erica LaRose and Mark Cartier, dancer extraordinaire and former green girl Manina Fortunato, voice of the USS Protostar Bonnie Gordon, uh, author of Star Trek A Comics History, Alan J. Porter, The Wash Gang, everybody I met out in Los Angeles for Shuttlepod Show Live, uh, executive producer and love of my life, Kat Davis, uh, a creator of the Star Trek Chronology Project, Jason Keener, Star Trek Enterprise regular cast member Connor Trenier, comedian Patrick Cunningham, former USS Enterprise engineer and DM and author Michael LeBlanc, pop artist Sensei Ha, host of Trexpert's Quiz Davey Willett, BQN producer and podcaster Amy Nelson, actor, writer, director, and buttery shoulders Matt Jennings, and of course today's guest, the lovely and talented Melly Kazel, thank you, thank you, thank you, everyone, so much for coming on and joining me for a very nerdy discussion. 
three weeks, we will be joined by Star Trek superfan Kevin Hebenstreit to discuss Discovery Season 2, Episode 1, Brother, which is available exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Melly, where can people find you and support you and your comedy and things going on? What you got? So um, I do, as we talked about before, I run a showcase out of Voodoo Brewing, and that's we do one a month. It's normally on Saturdays, um, and our next show is April 1st. Uh, so April 1st, 7 p.m., that'll be the next one. Otherwise, online, social media, um, I am on TikTok, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Melly Kazel Comedy. And if anyone wanted to reach out um, with anything they wanted to work on or anyone who does sketches, I do a lot of that kind of goofy stuff. Um, it's just Melly Kazel Comedy at gmail.com. And I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all of the socials. From all of us at the Computer Resume Podcast, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you in 10 forward. Like, rate, review, and share on all your favorite platforms. Feel free to send us your subspace transmissions to computerresumepodcasts at gmail.com or at Computer Resume on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. The Computer Resume podcast was created and produced by Mr. Todd A. Davis. Our logo was designed by Will Martin and Justin Bishop. The opening theme was produced by Justin Bishop, and our outro music was provided with permission by Dronode. Additional music was provided by Mr. Todd A. Davis and Gary Horn, and the voice of Computer Resume Podcast and executive producer, me, Kat Davis. Hashtag LLAP. We'll see you next time. Going through a Star Trek. We're doing Star Trek stuff in space. We've probably got some phasers and shuttle pods, and we're going to find a brand new race. How's that for a slice of fried gold?